want you to start by opening your Bibles to the first Samuel, and we're going to look at chapter 16, first Samuel chapter 16, a familiar passage that I'm going to give you a deeper revelation to it. I want to show you what I see in the word as I look at it. Now, follow with me as I read the word, understand that you're going to hear my voice, but you also should be listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit giving you revelation. It says this, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the prophet over the nation of Israel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Let's stop right there. God was speaking to the prophet and said, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. The revelation that you get from that is that your lineage matters and your geography matters. Can I get an amen? You may not have chosen your family. Your family may not be the family that you want, but it is the family that God sovereignly chose for you because it's the family that you need. And if you allow even the family you hate, even the family you don't get along with, even the family you despise and haven't talked to in years to become your teacher instead of your enemy, you'll get a revelation of why you were born to the family you were born with. But let me just take it a step further. He says, go to the Jesse of Bethlehem. Right now on Long Island, there's a lot of Anthonys. <laughs> the Anthony of Long Island. So he said, it was the Jesse of Bethlehem. It's the Anthony of Smithtown. <laughs> so... See how God is specific about geography. You may not have been born where you want to be born, but God knew. One of my favorite, one of my favorite sayings in scripture is, it is written. That's God's way of saying, I have foreknowledge. And how many of you know that God chose your geography when you were born, even if you didn't choose it because he had a plan? You may have hated your family and hated your region, but if you will get over your feelings and start to say, God, show me the reason why, he'll begin to unlock a profound meaning. It was Jesse of Bethlehem. Are y'all with me? So where you were born matters. The family that you were born to matters. It is written. There is a record of your life that dictates the intricate details of your life. Let's go a little bit deeper. But Samuel said, well, how can I even go here? If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. Then the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him and they asked, do, do, you, do, do, do you come in peace? This guy, the prophet, remember the story, because this whole month, this series is about lineage. He's born of a mother named Hannah. Hannah wasn't supposed to have children, but she prayed so emphatically that Eli, who was over the temple, watched her and said, I think this woman is drunk. And, and then the Lord says, no, she's actually petitioning heaven and through her desperation, I'm going to answer her prayers and give her a son named Samuel. But the only requirement is she has to give him back. And so think about this. 
as a baby, he's brought into the temple. He's put over the care of Eli. And then he learns to hone the voice of God. And he operates in such power as the mouthpiece of God in the nation of Israel that when he shows up, not only is he known, but he is feared. Because if he comes to rebuke and bring judgment, it's irrevocable because he's doing it on behalf of God. So when he shows up, they're shaking, saying, are you, are you here for a good reason? And he's like, yes, 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 I'm here in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse six is very important. Follow me. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And when Samuel, with his human eyes, even being the oracle of God, even being the prophet over the nation of Israel, when he saw with his human eyes, he said, surely the Lord has anointed this one that stands before me. How many of you know that even powerful prophetic people can get it wrong sometimes? And I know this is controversial for some people, but it's very clear to see that when Samuel went before to anoint Eliab, the Lord said, no, I'm not with him. I've rejected him. There's another one. So even as a powerful spiritual leader, sometimes you can get it wrong. Can I just stop and tell you right now, sometimes your pastor can get it wrong and not see your potential. Sometimes your pastor being a powerful man or woman of God can actually look at your life and miss the accuracy of what God has called you to. Understand some of you have went to churches where they didn't see who you really were. Well, thank God that he always sees who we really are. Let me show you this next verse, verse seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Come on, some of you who can hear me right now, you're the least likely in your family to even be in church. You're the least likely in your family to be an intercessor, to be a prayer warrior, to be a worship warrior. Some of them still remember you getting high, but now you're with the most high. Some of them still remember you getting drunk, but now you're getting drunk on the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes the only explanation is many are called, but few are chosen. I'm speaking to some chosen people today. Can you, can you give a five-second praise break that he didn't look at the outside, but he looked at the inside. Somehow he saw something in your heart that was longing for him. See, your family will see your brokenness. But the Lord says in that brokenness, in that contrite heart, I see a desperation to know the truth. See, some of you, you're truth seekers. And the Bible says those who seek will find. Those who knock, the door will be open to them. And see, you might've had some sin, but you were knocking. You might've had some sin, but you were seeking. You might have some sin, but there's something that was pressing a little bit deeper. And the Lord's like, oh, don't look on the outside. Oh, they don't got it all together yet. Oh, they're still falling now. But I see my righteousness through my blood in Christ Jesus. And what I make pure, I call pure. And what I make holy, I make holy. I'm thankful that he looks on the outside and not the inside. But listen, this is, this is, this is the prophet Samuel. He shows up then, then. But Samuel said, well, then Jesse called Abinadab. He said, well, okay, I'll bring Abinadab. 
And then the Lord said, nope, that ain't him. Then Jesse said, well, I'll bring Shaman. And the Lord said, it ain't Shaman. I'm just trying to help give you guys baby names. Eliab, some of you Abinadab, some of you Shaman. He said, that's not it. None of those are it. And he brings, it says in verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So Jesse, the dad, is physically bringing his sons over and over and over again. Here's another one. Here, no, 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 no. And Jesse's like, well, I guess, I guess that ain't it. And watch this. It was the prophet who said, are all these the sons that you have? And then Jesse said, oh, wait, there, there is still the youngest, the runt, the one that we forget about all the time, the one that we have go watch our sheep while we're doing more important things. He's in the back. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Oh, there's some wisdom in this. You may not be known in the earth, but you are known in heaven. You may not be feared on earth, but principalities and powers fear you. See, because David was cultivating the intimacy of a relationship with God in the private secret place of obscurity, and he didn't have a blue check mark, and he hadn't gone viral yet, and he hadn't preached to stadiums, and he didn't have a best-selling book, but God said, heaven knows you, son. You've registered some worship that you thought only the sheep could hear you, but heaven heard you. There's some of you right now that need to get the good word that... Oh, I'm telling you, while you're praying at work, you might be concerned about your coworkers hearing you, but the angelic host can hear you. There is another. I'm just one of those nothers. And our church is filled with nothers. I'm just another, just another alcoholic that God sobered up. Just another cheater that God called to fidelity. Just another preacher that thought he was going to give up that God said, keep going, son. How many of you say he left the 99 for the one? I'm that one. I'm that one. I'm that one. He came running after me. Oh, I thank God. You see the character of God through the prophet Samuel who says, go back and get him. Okay, there's still the youngest. Then he says, that's the one. Then he said, rise up and anoint him. This is the one. Samuel took the horn of the anointing and anointed him. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David then went to Ramah. Watch. There is always a gap between when you are anointed and when you are appointed. There is always going to be a gap. You are not appointed the same day that you are anointed. Oh, I know you loved getting that prophetic word and you thought it was going to happen when you left that service. Oh, I know you went to that conference and the renowned man of God that you paid $99.99 to get that word. And I took his e-course and I met him one time on Zoom. No, you didn't. You were just in the Zoom. <laughs> I know you got that. That is for me. There is, a di there is a distance between when you are anointed and when you are appointed. I got a word in 2000 and seven that I was going to make a movie. I didn't know it wasn't going to happen to, until 2022. I got a word in 1998 that I was going to launch a church. Didn't know it was going to happen until 2016. 
can you survive the gap between when you are anointed and when you are appointed? Can you survive the gap? Can you, because it's, because it's the gap that qualifies you. It's not the anointing. The anointing empowers you, but the gap qualifies you. See, the, you feel the power, but it's actually the qualification comes when you're able to survive the gap between when you're anointed and when you're appointed. There's many people that carry anointings that will never materialize into appointings because they don't survive the gap. And guess what? You know what activates the anointing to a greater degree? is people not believing you're anointed. Do you know what... <laughs> Do you know what increases the anointing? Persecution. The persecution is a necessary ingredient in increasing the magnitude of the anointing on your life. You have to have haters. Jesus said, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. As a matter of fact, if they don't hate you, it's because you're not like Jesus. And so here's, let me just tell you a, a deeper wisdom. So David experiences rejection, rejection, rejection. He gets rejected by his brothers. All seven of them stand before the prophet, and not one of them says, you know that big deal prophet that when he shows up, everybody's afraid that he's there? He's here. David, at least you should come to see it. They didn't think enough of him to even bring him into the atmosphere that could anoint him. Let me just tell you the truth. Don't expect your family to call out the greatness in you. It's more likely that your family's going to tell you what's wrong with you before they tell you what's righteous about you. It's likely your family's going to tell you what you can't do before they tell you what you can do. It's likely that the people who are going to fund your vision are going to be the people that don't have your genes. I'm telling you, there's something about the closer you get to a masterpiece, the less your eyes have visibility of what it is. If you're standing this far away from a da Vinci, it looks like a blur. And some of you, your spouse is this close and can't see your anointing. Some of you, your mother, your father, your brothers, your, they can't see that you're a renowned entrepreneur in training right now. They can't see that you're a renowned prophet. And, you, know, you know, a prophet in his hometown, it's the closer you get to the prophet, the less they can be prophetic to you. But there's something about distance. God designs distance to activate that anointing. Distance is necessary. Some of you wish you had a dad, but it would it never drove you to your heavenly father. Some of you wish you had a good pastor, but it would have never led you to the great shepherd. So there's something about distance. There has to be a distance. There has to be a distance. Has to be a distance. And so as I look at this, David is, is rejected by his brothers. I mean, the prophet Samuel, he really could have been offended to him. He could have been like, Samuel, you thought it was my big brother, uh, uh, you know, Shammah? What, what is wrong with you? Do you know him? I'm the one on the backside of the hill. You don't, obviously you don't know me. I mean, I got to defend myself because I'm worshiping. I killed the lion and the bear and I'm doing this. You never see David defending himself. Defense is what you do to protect your ego. Faithfulness is what you do to protect your anointing. Defense is what you do to protect your ego. Faithfulness is what you do to protect your anointing. David didn't clap back. David kept worshiping. Save your applause for the worship set. <laughs> Save your clapping for the worship set. See, the thing about it is, why do you have to defend yourself to people who are committed to misunderstanding you? 
They're committed to misunderstanding you. It would violate the integrity of their attack against you to change their position. They can't change their position. They can't say you're a good person. They can't say you're valuable. They can't because they've built an entire reputation off of saying you can't. So they can't. Can I give you a deeper revelation? Okay, let me give you a deeper revelation. Your family, most of them, if they're anything like mine, they're mediocre and they have comforts. They drink a little, they smoke a little, they cuss a little, they cheat a little. And what happens is when you make your mind up that you want to be the curse breaker, it's not that they're mad at you. It's that they're irritated by the feeling that's producing them by virtue of you leveling up. Because when you go higher, you expose their mediocrity. When you get sober, you expose their addiction. When you start, oh, come on. When you start loving your spouse, you expose how dysfunctional their marriage is. There's something about leveling up. And see, it's not them versus you. It's them versus the feeling that your presence produces when you're around. And some of you still can't register this. They want to love. Matter of fact, many of them do love you. They just don't love the way that righteousness and holiness and the way that you are pursuing God and the way that you're reading the word, they don't like what that does to them because it disturbs their definition of who they are by virtue of you changing the definition of who you are. Because they, because, because listen, in their mind, they have a version of you. And as long as you stay that version and you die, they don't feel jealousy. They don't feel competition. They, listen, they like you not having as much money as them. Because that makes them feel good about themselves. They like, oh, come on. They, oh, I'm talking to somebody right now. This is David on the, hey, keep David on the backside of the hill. Matter of fact, when he shows up to get anointed, it said he's handsome and he's glowing. So they like to take people that your very presence exposes their identity and they try to hide you as far back on the hill as they can. But that's all right. Because you don't see David trying to defend himself. You see faithfulness. He goes from that anointing and he goes to Ramah. Some of you need to learn how to go to Ramah. You need to go back to faithfulness. Let me tell you why. David understood something very powerful. The one who called me is going to be the one that completes this journey. He who began a good work in me will see it through till completion. Promotion doesn't come from Jesse, my father. Promotion doesn't even come from the prophet. Promotion comes from the one that the prophet prophesies on behalf of. And so my faith and my, is connected to my faithfulness. See, there's a faith and faithfulness are, you cannot disconnect them. The more faith I have in him, the more faithfulness I'll have towards him. Because my faith is in him, I am faithful. I am faithful. Oh, this word's going in deep. I am faithful. Why do you not give up on God? Because he will never give up on me. Because, oh, somebody... The righteous, I have never seen them forsaken or begging for bread. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When my dad doesn't have the answer, my heavenly father does. When my friend can't be there, he sticks closer than a brother. I am, th- I am faithful because it is actual physical representation of my faith. You cannot disconnect it. So then all of a sudden, 
He's dealing with rejection, but let me just tell you. So now he's been rejected by a spiritual leader. He's been, re- but, but listen, Samuel didn't do it on purpose. Some of you need to hear this. Your pastor didn't hurt you on purpose. Yeah, nobody amens on that. Jesse didn't hurt him on purpose necessarily. We don't know this. It's not given to us as a detail in scripture. What we do know is that he didn't think to include him. But see, sometimes you're expecting people to see something in you that they don't see in them. They don't look at themselves and call out greatness. They don't look at themselves. They don't look at themselves and encourage themselves. You're asking somebody to do something for you that they can't do for them. That's why David said, I will encourage myself in the Lord because my dad never learned how to encourage himself. That's probably why he didn't encourage me. I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. I'm going to do the thing for me that they cannot do because they don't do it for them. Some of you, it don't make sense. Okay, now let's go a few more chapters. The story continues. Finally, David is appointed. I'm living in that palace, boy got that good house, got that cyber truck. They just announced through, uh, I don't know what car you want. I got that BMW. I got that Mercedes. I got that Tesla. I got, I don't know what your fantasy is. The G-Wagon, some of you rolling dirty. <laughs> Look at me. I'm flexing now. Look at me. Yeah. These are real sneakers. These ain't the ripoffs no more. Come on. <laughs> no more psyches. It's Nikes. Come on. Yeah. No more Ducci. It's Gucci. Come on. But here's, here's the thing. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked out towards those who were tormenting him. And he modeled for us the only acceptable interaction with those who have every intention to take you out. Matter of fact, they even said, why don't you call on the angels and bring them down to save you? Then they, there's all these temptations swirling around the cross. One of the temptations was spiritual witchcraft to use the power of God for demonic means. And he refuses to call on angels to rescue him because he has to see it through. Number two is they put this bitter gall to his mouth so maybe he doesn't have to go through it sober. And some of you need to stop arguing over Christian liberties and learn how to suffer sober. Jesus refused. Oh, but Jesus drank wine. Not on the cross, homie. So what if I told you that you've learned how to drink wine, but you haven't learned how to refuse it and get up on your cross? Oh, I drink wine like Jesus. Yeah, die like him and refuse wine too. Oh, I'm coming for you. So all of a sudden, he looks down and he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm gonna tell you a secret. Lean in. This is our family talk. Some of you wish you could have conversations with loved ones who have passed away, your mother and your father, You wish you could sit down. Maybe you're estranged from a cousin, from a brother, from a sister. Can I tell you a secret? You think they're going to unravel the mysteries of why it happened, why they hurt you, why they they abandoned you. 
Can I tell you, sometimes they don't even know why they did it. That's why Jesus said the only response is forgive them for they know not what they do. Sometimes, I know this is hard to believe that there's no explanation, but it means that it's not that there's no explanation, it's that you're not getting one from them. They don't know why they're sinning against you. They don't know why they're hurting you, just like he, they didn't know the, why they were doing it to Jesus. And so if you're looking for the answer in a conversation, if you're looking for closure in a conversation, the only closure is in Christ. The only confirmation is in Christ. The only answer is in Christ. The only answer you need is but the blood of Jesus, but God. The only answer, I don't need my biological father's explanation. I need my heavenly father's confirmation. I loved you before you were in your mother's womb. I made you and I saw you when no one else saw you. I knit you together. I don't need a conversation. I need prayer. I need the intimacy of communion. Oh, I'm preaching to somebody right now. Stop looking for closure and confirmation and conversations when you can get it from the cross. See, David, he didn't deal with the rejection because he was a fighter. Then you go a couple chapters later, and you know what he's doing? He gets together these bands of other men, and they go on exploits, and they go and take all this territory, and they're defeating the enemies of God, and they're doing all these things, and he starts encountering Saul, who he's supposed to replace as king, and Saul doesn't embrace him and say, I want to mentor you, son, and I want to take you out to lunch, son, and I want to tell you the wisdom of my life, and I've got money for you, son, and I want to be there for you. He actually tries to kill him, and I know that many of you have this fantasy in your mind that one day you're going to meet a hero that comes to save you. And you're going to meet somebody, finally, I'm going to sit across the table from them and they're going to be for me what I always needed. But David had this acknowledgement, oh no, now they're trying to kill me. Saul's trying to kill me. So think about what I'm saying. His father didn't see his destiny. His brothers didn't see his destiny. At first, the prophet Samuel didn't see the destiny. And now the king doesn't see his destiny. And then the one person that actually believes in him is Jonathan. And Jonathan covenants to him. And Jonathan says, homie, I'm here for you. I'll go to battle with you. Homie, I got your back. But then through a series of events, Jonathan dies. So now he's grieving. Can I just tell you, Grief deferred is grief multiplied. Feelings don't go away. They materialize and manifest into other things. So the thing that I have to help you understand is that if we're going to get some healing on this journey, you need to look and examine at the seasons of your life where you didn't confront rejection. You maybe drank your way through it. You maybe partied your way through it, but you never confronted it. I want you to think about grief. Sometimes we have just one person in our life that this person made us laugh. This person picked us up and drove us and took us out to eat. And then they die. And you know what we do when people die? That were close to us. We memorialize them in a tattoo, which I think, and I don't want to say this to condemn those of you who have done it, but hear me. Oftentimes that's a plot from the enemy because it gets you, instead of a season of grief, you go into a cycle of grief. And every single time you see that tattoo, you mourn it again. See, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter three, there is a time for mourning. 
That means that you as a human being have to learn how to mourn in life. There is a book called Lamentations because we have to learn how to lament. That means if you lost a parent and didn't grieve properly, it is going to manifest in your life as something else. If you lost a loved one, a friend, and you have not allowed yourself to go through that process of grief, if you lost a church and you were connected to that church and then you had to disconnect because the pastor fell, there was supposed to be a season of proper grieving. And if you were to ask me as a spiritual father and a pastor to many, many people, what is the dysfunction that you see in most people's lives? I would say they never learn how to confront rejection and they never learn how to go through a process of grief. And we're doing it right now. Let me tell you a story about my life. Many of you have seen my story featured in a movie Divinely, this woman has a prophetic dream and says, God's gonna call you to preach. Sid Roth featured it. That story's been told many, many times. But can I tell you that there is a gap between when you're anointed and when you're appointed. And the devil's goal is to destroy you during that entire process. And then to finally, if he can't do it, then destroy you when you get there. And I remember finally getting, you know, ordained, starting my young family, but then my whole world started to fall apart. And many of you know this story. The last conversation I had with my biological father, I called him on my birthday because every single year on my birthday, I had this fantasy that I was going to finally get a phone call, that I was finally going to get a birthday card, that he was going to, and it never happened. On my 21st birthday, I humbled myself and I said, you know what? I'm a man of God now. I'm, I'm gonna forgive my dad. I'm gonna release him from everything he did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the bigger man. I called my dad and I said, dad, I got your number. I haven't talked to you for years and years and years. And uh, I would like to have a relationship with you. And I'm a pastor now. I had that conversation in my father-in-law's driveway on my 21st birthday. And you know, my dad you know how he responded? He said, we've never had a relationship. Why start now? Let sleeping dogs lie. That was the last phrase he said, let sleeping dogs lie. And then he hung up the phone. A couple years later, he died. And that devastated me on a level. Then my pastor got into infidelity. And then my, the other pastor that was over me, him and his wife's marriage broke up. So the entire system of men around me completely eroded and was eliminated within two to three years. I had no support and I was struggling so bad. And I took the temptation of drinking alcohol and believing it was going to help me get through. And I will tell you, I never went through a grieving season in different times of my life. I never confronted rejection. I thought I did. I attended church services just like this every single Sunday, and it dealt with surface level things, but I didn't go to the root. Finally, what happened is alcoholism is something that you try to manage. The last person to believe that they're an alcoholic is the alcoholic. Everyone else will tell you you're one before you believe you're one. The most amount of money I ever made in my life is when I was an alcoholic. I had multiple businesses, was extremely entrepreneurial, and I, I thought I was thriving while everything around me was dying. And this is what you understand about addiction. But see, I had a lot of pain from my past. And all of a sudden, it got so bad, my wife left me. 
And finally, I couldn't cover it anymore. And I remember saying, fine, I'm gonna go to Christian counseling. And I went to this Christian counselor who was medically trained, but also had the biblical training. And I remember looking at him and over the course of this first session, I was just, I started getting angrier and angrier. I started getting so mad because I'm looking at this guy. Now watch, he was reminding me of my dad and I was being triggered interacting with an older man. Now, can I just tell you the real reason why most churches don't grow? Real reason why most churches don't grow is because you get a whole bunch of traumatized, triggered people together in one space and they start interacting with people that remind them of the people that hurt them and they choose to leave instead of confronting and conquering and breaking through. And then those same people who've never dealt with their trauma and their trigger, which is strongholds, which is strongholds and things in their mind, what happens is they lie on the Holy Ghost. Y'all hear me? They lie on the Holy Ghost and they say, the Holy Spirit told me it's time to leave. My season at V1 has ended. No, you're traumatized and you're triggered and you wanna run away instead of confronting and resolving. And let me tell you why. Because for many of us in our homes, whenever there was a big argument, someone had to leave. See, you wanna know what should happen? You cleave instead of leave. What should happen is true conflict is when you reveal your feelings and they reveal their feelings and you resolve it, which produces true intimacy. And so the only way you can have true intimacy is when you have true conflict. But you don't understand this when you come from broken homes like my home because conflict always produced divorce and division. But it is possible that conflict actually produces intimacy and that intimacy causes you to be closer than before because the truth will set you free. And so the truth comes out in conflict. The truth about how you re really, I've been in meetings with our leaders of our church and they get mad at me and they start yelling and I start laughing and they're like, why are you laughing? I said, because now you're finally getting on well aren't you going to kick me off the team no I'm going to bring you closer because our relationship was the fakest it ever was before you started telling me how you really feel but see you know how I learned this I learned this because when I looked at this man who was triggering me I said let me get this straight I have lost every male figure in my life and now I got to pay you what little money I have, you know, and I, you got to, and I'm like literally going crazy. Now I was a little drunk too. And I'm looking at this guy. Now I got to pay you to, to be a dad to me. I got to pay you to care about me. And this counselor, you know what he said? Mike, if that's what you think this is, I did not go into counseling for that. I will meet with you for free for the rest of your life until you get free. Because I wanna make a commitment to you as a man that I really believe in your potential and he saw something in me. I'm eternally indebted to this guy. You know what that's called? Grace. And he said, but I'm gonna give you homework. He said, what I want you to do is for the next several weeks, every single week, I want you to go back to a different place. I want you to start at the beginning of your life and I want you to go back to a different place where you were wounded where you were hurt. And I want you to do something very simple. I want you to ask the Lord, show me where you were when it happened to me. So the next week I went to the place where 
the trailer park used to be. Now, mind you, they took the whole trailer park down. It was just a vacant lot. And I stood in that lot and my mind went back to the time where my biological father showed up and held my mom at gunpoint and said, you will let me take Michael Jr. And took me, loaded me in the backseat of his Camaro and drove me to his house. And then over months, as I continue to stay at his house part-time, begin to systematically abuse me, my own biological father. And I'm standing on the soil of where this trailer park was and I'm thinking about how he would have mechanics hands that were filled with grease and dirt and put his hands over the cereal and pour the milk over his hand and literally be like, now, now eat that. Sadistic, sick torment. How they would feed me raw meat. I eventually got seminilla, went into the hospital for months and almost lost my life because of the torment and the torture that my biological father subjected me to. And I stood on that ground and I said, God, I, I've been preaching now for years, telling people how good you are. Why weren't you good there? Why weren't you good then? And I really, I begin to confront, 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 confront. I didn't get an answer. Matter of fact, and this is what they don't tell you when you start confronting, it gets worse before it gets better. It gets worse before it gets better. Then the next week, I went to the next location. God, this is the house where my mom got remarried and I gave my trust to that new man and I allowed him to call me son and I allowed him to play with me and have a good time and I put my trust that we were finally gonna have the picturesque existence but he got addicted to heroin but he also abused me. Where were you when this happened? We were going to church every week. We were serving you, God, what happened? No, no answer. Finally, on the third week, I show up to that house, the next house, and I just, I begin to say, God, this is the last time I ever saw my biological father. He came by to see me. I was sick with a fever in bed. He spent a few minutes with me and left. That was the last time I ever saw him. And I said, this, this is the point now where finally my mom gets divorced. This is the house where we have to put on every single item of clothing that we have so that because we have no heat, we can survive the winter in Northwest Indiana. This is where I will go to bed hungry many nights while we figure out how to get food. Why did you let it happen? Where were you, God, when I was freezing cold? Where were you, God, when I was hungry? All of a sudden, I had one of the most palpable, tangible experiences with Almighty God that I've ever had. And it didn't happen in a church. It happened standing right on the soil of that house. Now, my, if some, whoever was living in this house, thank God they didn't see some lunatic former preacher in their backyard yelling at God. But all of a sudden, I heard God say, Mike, I am still there in 1987. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I don't just heal geographically, I heal chronologically. And I am still in the moment where it hurts you. That's what makes my healing different than all other healing. 
Every other healer heals from that moment forward, but I can go backwards and I can deal with the thing at the very root of where it happened. And if you give me permission and the Lord says, I never intended those things to happen to you, son, I am good. But there is an enemy called the devil. There are demons and they come to kill, to steal and destroy. And if you let me, I will turn you into a warrior. If you let me, I will take the weapon that the enemy meant to destroy you and place it in your hand and I will take what he meant for your harm and turn it around for your good if you will let me heal you right here and I said Lord do whatever you want to do I'm not mad at you anymore God and all of a sudden I begin to experience healing and I didn't want to drink anymore so I go to the next counseling session And every week I'm debriefing and I say, the craziest thing happened. I don't want to drink anymore. I I just feel like I don't even have a taste for it. And you know what he said? I knew this would happen. I was hoping it would happen this week or next week. I'm like, you knew this was going to happen? He said, yeah, because I'm teaching you how to confront rejection and grief. And I let you mourn it because the little boy never learned that. The teenager never learned it. But Mike Signorelli, the man, finally learned how to grieve, finally learned how to confront. Now watch, when you grieve with God, it's called prayer. When you grieve without God, it's called addiction. Do y'all hear me? When you grieve with him, it's called prayer. It's called relationship. But when you grieve without him, it's destruction. So it's inviting God in. And that was the thing. God wasn't mad at me. God could handle my thoughts. God could handle my dysfunction. God wasn't mad at me. He said, I wish you would have done this sooner, son. What did you think Jack Daniels was going to do that Jesus Christ couldn't do? I wish you would have come to me sooner. I wish we'd have had this talk. You're not hurting my feelings. I'm unoffendable. You couldn't hurt Jesus' feelings on the cross. What makes you think you're going to hurt his feelings in a deep conversation? So let me tell you, as we come to a a conclusion, as we come to a close, there's one last final moment. I wanna show you this. When you go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, so now I've taken you from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. Now, David is gone from anointed to appointed. He's finally arrived. He finally made it. He's flexing. He's living that life but there's still some things he has not addressed and it's coming for him. Now look, in the 11th chapter, verse one, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David was supposed to go fight. David was supposed to war. David was a man of war. But here's the thing. David fought the lion when his brothers and nobody cared about him. Nobody showed up to save him. He fought the bear when nobody else showed up. He fought Goliath when nobody in Israel would do it. He fought Goliath's brothers. He barely escaped that. He kept fighting and fighting and fighting. It's all the way until 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David finally says, I am tired of 
of fighting. I can't do it. I'm not going. And let me just tell you what happened for David here is he's standing on the rooftop. He looks out and sees Bathsheba. He sees this woman naked bathing and he says, bring me that woman. And then he sleeps with her and has a child. And then he has to cover up his sin. So he orchestrates the death of her husband. And in one moment of vulnerability becomes an adulterer and a murderer. And what I can tell you is that oftentimes when we sin, it's not because we wake up saying, I want to be evil today. I want to be diabolical. We wake up and we say, I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. Nobody ever helps me. I'm going to do something for me and I don't care. I'm going to drink because nobody cares about me. I'm going to get high because nobody. What does it matter anyway? I keep fighting and there's another fight. And God wants to get to the root of this today. The root of it. Because I'm going to tell you a secret. This moment where David said, I don't want to go fight became his moment of greatest sin. But it was actually it held the potential to become the moment of his greatest intimacy with the Father. Imagine if the psalmist David, who's prolific writer of songs, would have went in this moment and said, God, I want to sleep with Bathsheba so bad, but I am tired of fighting. Come and rescue me. I want to do... You know, one of my favorite songs is by this guy, Rich Mullins. Have you ever heard this song? He said, hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Now be my prince of peace. Have you ever heard that song? It's an old song. And it's one of my favorite stories because he was in Amsterdam where prostitution was legal. And all the guys of his band went out and he, and he was single and he wanted to go out so badly and he said, I'm going to lock myself in. And he wrote that song and says, hold me, Jesus. I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Now be my prince of peace. See, there's God. See, in every generation of your life, they have taken the bait of Satan to be offended. They've taken the bait of Satan to not be faithful, but to come out of that faithfulness. They've taken the bait of Satan to be addicted. They've taken the bait of Satan to keep going around. There's got to be somebody who locks the door. There's got to be someone say, I'm shaking. Hold me, Jesus. I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Now be my prince of peace. There's got to be somebody that says, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to confront. When you look at David, I want to say this is our last thing. So stand on your feet right now. I want to say this is our very last. Let's get communion going across every single location. If you don't have a communion cup, grab it. Because we're going to do something over the next seven days. So grab your communion elements. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David did not go off to war. He was tired of fighting. I want to tell you a secret. There are no heroes and there are no villains in life. There's one villain and his name is Satan. And he convinced one third of the angels to rebel against God with him. And for the entirety of your time on planet Earth, you will be fighting that 
that fallen angel, you'll be fighting Lucifer. And there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not me, your pastor. I'm not your hero. I'm pointing you to the true hero. It's Jesus Christ. But let me explain. Now, I told you about the bad things my dad did, but I don't want to demonize and I don't want to villainize. I want to humanize because wisdom humanizes. Can I tell you why I think my dad did the bad things he did? If you go read the news article and it's all over the internet and you could read the articles from the 80s, my biological father took a man captive, chained him up in his basement, systematically tortured him, beat him with a baseball bat, broke his ribs, didn't release him, and then he died, literally in the basement. Every time I had visitation, I would go over to my father's house and I was never allowed in the basement. And I eventually found out why, because after he committed murder, he went to prison. So the same man that was torturing and eventually murdered another man in the basement was abusing his son, Michael. I have the same name as my dad. I have the same face, I have the same hands. You talk about triggered. So why am I telling you, why am I burying my soul for you today? Let me tell you why. Because I had to go to the root and confront. Here's what I think. My dad watched his dad and his brother die prematurely. And wherever there is fear, that fear becomes selfishness. I will tell you straight up, the most fearful people are the most selfish people. And the most selfish people are the most fearful people. When people come to churches and they're like, I can't believe this church, all they do is ask for money. That person is afraid. This is my money. I can't believe that pastor. Look at the jacket he's wearing. Did I pay for that jacket? Homie, you didn't pay for this jacket. <laughs> but can I tell you that when I hear people's, oh, this prosperity guy, the more they talk, I say, this person is scared. And that fear in the area of finances has caused them to become incredibly selfish. They're probably not generous with anybody in their family. True generosity doesn't take score. True generosity never takes score. You don't care what they did with it. And so if you're all, what did I do? That's not generosity. So here's my point. Wherever there's fear, there's selfishness. And so what happens is fear causes you to think me, 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 me. And I think that there were multiple generations of fear as a result of premature death in my family. And that fear turned into addiction and that addiction grew and turned into selfishness and increased so much that my dad was literally the living embodiment of the apex of fear. Because fear is if I can't make the pain go away, you all are gonna feel it with me. What I'm saying would stop first-person shooters in America. If we stopped dealing with surface-level things and learn how to bring the cross of Jesus Christ back into our society and taught people that you don't have to live in fear, but they fill us with fear in the news media, and then we live fear of consequences, we live fear of repercussions, and that fear over generations turns into selfishness, and selfish the end route of selfishness is taking a, a rock and killing your brother. It's the very first murder that we have. And so God wants to deal with the root. So here's, 
Here's the thing. I, I remember the moment where I stopped villainizing my dad. I stopped demonizing my dad and I started humanizing my biological father. And I'll tell you this, humanizing is not the same as justifying. Do you all hear what I just said? Justify and humanize are not the same. But you need to understand that the people who hurt you were hurt and those people were hurt, and those people were hurt. Somebody has to break the cycle. And the way you break the cycle is not through revenge, and it's not through running the other way. It's through redemption. Jesus said, I, even God said, I can't even look at my son. And he says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, somebody has to bear it all. Somebody has to carry the filth of every consequence of every sin. And so what we're going to learn in V1 church is not how to say the whole not lie on the holy spirit my season was changed no your cycle was broken we're going to learn how to confront we're going to let god heal it and we are going to be free because whom the son sets free is free indeed whom the son sets free grief deferred turns into physical health conditions we're about to pray, take communion right now. When you defer grief, it turns into IBS. It turns into disrupted sleep patterns. I mean, it physically, it turns into hypertension, heart palpitations, anxiety. I am diagnosing society right now because no one taught us to grieve. The men aren't allowed to cry. We're not allowed to take breaks. We don't get vacations. We just keep going from battle to battle to battle. This is David. David went from the lion to the bear, to Goliath, to Goliath's brother, to other countries. He never, and finally the one time he said, I'm not, I'm not fighting anymore. He committed his biggest sin and it carried multi-generational repercussions. So the answer is not fighting and the answer is not running from the fight. The answer, okay, here's the end, is letting Jesus be your champion. So this is what communion is. And we are gonna take communion for the next seven days corporately, every single home. This is the first one. And next Sunday, we're taking communion together and that will be the seventh one. And we are gonna take communion every day because now I graduated and now I'm not the one getting homework, I'm the one giving homework. So I'm giving you homework. You are gonna sit in your house one night, every single night of the week, or every one night, you know, every night, and you are gonna take communion. Take it with your family, take it with whoever you live with, take it with your dog, take it with your cat. Your cat's demonized and needs it anyways. Now, why, why do I, some of you come from Catholicism. Oh, can we, we have to go to the priest for sacrament. Oh, get out of here. Jesus said to his disciples, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance. They weren't apostles. They weren't pastors. They weren't evangelists. They were only disciples. And he said, y'all need to be doing communion. So what do you do at home? How do I do communion? I want you to get bread and juice and every night of the week for the next seven nights, I want you to take communion. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the things in your past that, that you, and I want you to ask them, where were you, God? Where were you, God? And then I want you to take communion. And here's why. This blood, you know what it represents? 
you're not the hero. He is. This isn't your blood. This is his blood. This body that was broken, when you take it, what you're going to say is, Jesus, you're the champion. You're the hero. I can't fight. There's some things in my life I can't conquer. There's some things in my life I don't know how to win against. There are some things I don't. I'm at the risk of transferring it to my children. I'm at the risk of, I can't, God, I need you to be my champion. And what's going to happen is you're going to lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And there's something about the blood there's something you see what I've been trying to do last week we talked about the blood and isn't it amazing that the blood of Passover went over the doorposts but the blood of communion went inside of the doorposts why because death passed by in the old covenant but death was conquered in the new covenant Come on, I'm giving you revelation. I'm giving you, because when the blood, see, now it needs to get on the inside of you because in your lineage are some things that none of your family members have ever gotten free from. But when the blood gets on the inside of you, it changes you on a DNA level. It changes you on an ancestral level. When the body, you share the DNA. It doesn't delete your DNA. It redeems your DNA. It's now the body of Christ. I've been grafted into the family of Christ and whom the Son sets free is free indeed from every physical condition, from every demon in hell. Come on, somebody. So when we get back here next Sunday, we will be taking the seventh and final communion. You've been struggling in your marriage? Every day this week, I want you to do communion with your spouse. You've been struggling with your kids? Well, first of all, if they live in your house, there is no struggle. You already won. They better do what you say to do. We're taking communion, fool, till you're not a fool. <laughs> Doing communion together. When Julie, after I came out of that counseling moment, when Julie and I rededicated our, our marriage and we, did our, we renewed our vows, we invited all the haters to our vow renewal. We did, all of them. We made a list of everybody talking about us and gossiping, and they're like, man, I'm so, I'm so grateful. You, how, do, how did I get the invite? Well, you're a trash-talking, fork-tongued, lying, good for nothing, but you're here. You're here, and you'll see. <laughs> and then at the very end, we did communion. And what we said is the same blood that washes me is the same blood that washes you. The same body that was broken for me was broken for you. When we take this, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so guess what? You want to talk about something? Talk about the blood. <laughs> you want to talk about something? Talk about forgiveness. You want to talk about something? Talk about, come on. So right now we're going to do this together. Are you ready? I want you to take this bread and just consume it now. This is his body that was broken for you. Every sin, every fault, every failure, all broken for your healing, for your restoration. Now I want you to take this blood. This is not external, this is internal. It's about to go on the inside of you and do a work. Just consume this now. Now. We're gonna do a song across every single location. 
Today went long because this is the first sermon I had to set the pace for the remainder of this series. And so what we're gonna do is as we sing this song, we're gonna open up the altar if you need to come or if you wanna stay at your seat. If you need to journal, get out your notebook, get out your phone, your notepad, and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you. We're just gonna take a few moments right now before we transition out of this service and we're gonna allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to many of you right now. And I wanna pray over you in this moment. So Heavenly Father, I thank you right now that yes, we were rejected, but it's because we are becoming more like you. God, we went through grief and some of us didn't mourn properly, but you're gonna bring us through a process of acknowledging and mourning and you are gonna bring us through a process of understanding. And there are no heroes but you, Jesus. There are no villains but Satan. And Father, I thank you for bringing it into alignment right now. And Lord, that you would begin to bring us through a process. There's something about before 2024, before the end of the year, you will cause us to deal with things that we have not dealt with. And Lord, I thank you right now. Lord, we didn't have the family we wanted but we had the family that we needed, God. We didn't live where we wanted, but we lived where we needed. And what the devil meant for our harm, God, you are gonna turn it around for our good. It's the weapons of our warfare. It's the best-selling book in the form of pain. God, it's the business idea in the form of pain. God, I thank you that you are gonna cause it to have a purpose, Lord. Come on, guys, just begin to lift it up all over this place and just begin to press into this moment right now. Yeah, come on, that veil was rent that you would have access to the Holy of Holies. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, come on. The Holy Spirit is beginning to move in your midst. Some of you feel His presence drawing you right now, drawing you right now. You are not a victim. You are a victor through Christ. You are not the tail anymore. You are the head. Come on. You are not cursed. You are blessed by the blood of Jesus. Come on, there's an identity that's being shifted right now. If you need to come to the altar at any location and spend a few moments, you can come up front to the stage area and you can begin to just cry out before the Lord. If you need to do it at your seats, Come on, take this time right now. Come on, while we're singing, I wanna say one last thing for many of you. My dad was not a good dad, but Julie's dad was the best dad. But the best dad is still not Jesus. And when I saw the things that she had to process from her past, can I just tell you that none of you are enough? There is never gonna be somebody that replaces your need for Jesus. And this is a moment right now where I feel like every fantasy is dying. Some of you have a fantasy that's dying right now. And see, God is just allowing that fantasy to die so that your intimacy and reality with Him can actually thrive. He's allowing that fantasy of, oh, there's gonna be a person who comes and saves me. Jesus says, I already came and I already saved you. I already did the rescuing. I already did the saving. Let me be for you what I have longed to be with you for a long time.